Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number three of the nature of Middle Earth as we continue our slow and deliberate way. I'm laughing at myself because, of course, uh, the further we get into this book, which isn't all that far, uh, the, <laughs> the slower I keep wanting to go. Uh, as um, man, I was like prepping chapter six and I was like, how can I skip any of this? This is like gold. This is all of it. Gold. Uh, anyway, yeah. So, yeah, for those of you who are with me in the Zoom session, that's right. Uh, Q&A is where you post questions and I can see your comments. Those of you who are on Twitch or YouTube or other places, you can post comments and I can see those too. But keep in mind, I'm trying to follow two windows all at once. So, And also your time delayed. So, um, uh, the uh, you can register for the Zoom session to participate in a non-time-delayed fashion uh, by going to the Mythgard Academy page uh, on the Nature of Middle-Earth, and there's a registration link there uh, for the Zoom session, which you are welcome to join. Um, so, uh, anyway, and Chapter 7 is the jackpot. I know, right? I mean, it's just... I'm in no rush, and I hope you're not in any rush, because there's a lot to process here, and I mean to process it. Uh, I, I, I have to. I've never read this book before, right? So this is not even a question of, I want to think this through carefully. I want to make sure I'm covering this respectfully. Uh, you know, I want to make sure I'm not just uh, kind of leaving things behind. You know, that's how I felt in Morgoth's Ring. There were a bunch of things that I was wrestling with in Morgoth's Ring too. But in any case, here, I'm just like, dude, I, you know, man, I'm, I'm still trying to take this all in. Um, so, um, Anyway, yeah, <laughs> Matthew says, I knew we would take a long time just by looking at the table of contents. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, me too, me too, but it's all good. It's all good. All right, so, but before we get started tonight, just a quick reminder that our fundraising campaign is going on, our fall fundraising campaign uh, for Signum University's annual fund. Um, we're doing really, really well. We've raised over $63,000 so far in gifts and pledges for this coming year. Our goal is 100000 so we are we are well on the way towards our goal. Um, and I want to do our drawing again this week. Uh, for So what I've been doing is every week of the campaign, um, at the beginning of this, uh, this discussion, every Wednesday night, I am uh, rolling among the... Uh, I'm rolling my my dice. I have my, my nice green dice. Uh, and I'm rolling among uh, the folks who have made donations during this past week. So from, you know, 10 p.m. Uh, Eastern time last week through the beginning of class today. Um, uh, and that includes people who have monthly donations set up. So if your monthly donation fell during this week, then you get entered in. If you give multiple gifts in multiple weeks, you increase your odds of, uh, uh, of, of uh, uh, being selected. And the one who is selected uh, gets a ticket which they can redeem for uh, a, basically a unit of any one of our four, um, our four programs. Um, you can get an anytime audit registration for one of our graduate programs. You can get a month of our Signum Academy clubs. You can get one of our Signum Path uh, professional development courses. 
or you can get one of our brand new space modules, which we will be launching in December and concerning which I will be giving more information. I'll be telling you guys all about the space program, how it's going to work, what our initial set of modules are, what plans we have for coming down the road. I'm going to be telling you all about that stuff on Saturday, next Saturday, the 16th of October at our webathon. Um, so uh, let me um, let me do the drawing. Let me do the drawing. Let's see. Okay. Um, okay. Here we go. And oh, all right, all right. Oh, now where'd my window go? There it is. Okay. And we're looking at it's person number eight. Who is person number eight? Person number eight is Dominic Nardi. Dominic Nardi is the winner this week. So Dom Nardi, uh, send an email to info at signumu.org and we will get you connected with your prize. Congratulations, Dom. Um, Awesome. Okay, so uh, last thing to remind you of before we begin uh, is that this very weekend uh, is Middle Moot in Iowa. This is our this is our our uh, Midwestern Moot. Um, so we're going to be in Waterloo, Iowa. Uh, on the campus of Hawkeye Community College. And uh, this is the third time we have been out there in Iowa, our fifth annual Middle Moot, if you can believe it. Middle Moot is uh, one of our two oldest regional moots, uh, our fifth time this year, which is pretty awesome. Um, our moot is going to be a hybrid moot, so you can attend physically or you could attend digitally. Uh, and uh, both should be really fun. So um, uh, the guest uh, uh, speaker, the plenary speaker uh, at the conference this year is Michael Drought. Um, so he's going to be talking. We can get Michael Drought talking about philology. So you'll get a chance to uh, to meet and hang out with uh, Mike Drought in Iowa if you can come. Uh, and you'll get a chance to uh, to hear from him and, and uh, talk to him a bit if you attend digitally as well. So um, I hope that you will um, uh, hope that you will um, uh, come and join us. There's still time to register. Go to signumuniversity.org slash events and you will find a link uh, for Middlemoot uh, and can join from there. And Jocelyn, I will be telling you more details next week about the Webathon. Uh, it's going to start in the early afternoon Eastern time uh, and go into the night. Uh, we have a lot going on. We're going to do a bunch of different space capsules so there can be lots of really fun separate learning sessions. Uh, I'm going to be doing some unusual things, <laughs> including, okay, I'll tell you one thing I'm going to be doing during the webathon this year. Um, so I was invited to do a Reddit AMA to do an ask me anything, uh, with Reddit. And I decided I'm going to, I'm during the webathon, I'm going to do it during the webathon and I'm going to stream the AMA. So you guys can be like backstage with me while I'm doing my Reddit AMA. <laughs> so you can, so you can help me with my responses. Uh, it'll be fun. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure how that's going to go but I think it should be it should be interesting um Anyway, so um, uh, so that's going to happen during the webathon. There's going to be a whole bunch of teaching sessions, and I'm going to be doing the State of the University Address in which I explain all about space and our space program, uh, which is going to be really, really cool. Um, so uh, anyway, um, <laughs> that's uh, uh, that's that's what's going to be some of what is going to be happening uh, next Saturday on the 16th of October. Full details to follow next week. Um, uh, now, let us get back into the text. We had just been looking at some of the way in which uh, 
even in the kind of planning stages, right, as he's doing some of this really uh, kind of nuts and bolts world building and, you know, working out, doing math and all that kind of thing, um, we were looking at ways in which the narrative, the different ways in which that was affecting the narrative. So you will recall um, that one of the things that we were talking about last week was that we could kind of see it already working in both directions, right? On the one hand, a lot of the world building that he was doing was based upon the foundation of the stories that he'd already written. And one of the examples that I gave, um, uh, at least again, this is how it seems to me. I, I don't know for sure what's in his head, but what it appears to be is that he is taking, when he says things like, um, you know, the, uh, the, the elves normally had two to four, you know, two to four children. Um, five was unusual and seven was exceptional and there was only one case. When he says that, that seems to basically fit the pattern of what he had already written, right? All of the elf families that he had already described had, fam- you know, that was just a, a, a sort of uh, summary, right? Description of what was. And so he was like codifying that. He was, um, he was basing his world building on the stories. But we saw other places where the world building was itself beginning to go back in and alter the stories. Um, uh, such as where we were, um, when, where he was working out in more detail what it meant to Melian that she had Luthien and an explanation of why Luthien has no siblings. And more importantly, at least, it was more important to me, um, and I know it was to some of you as well. I got some messages this week that was very nice. Um, why Melian did a bunk right right after Thingol died um, because it was... Um, uh, you know, again, like explained in the context of working out in more detail what it actually means, what childbearing means, what the relationship between the Thea and the Hroa, what that meant for Melian, all of these things we were looking at last week. Um, uh, these things begin to kind of go back and inform the stories themselves. Now, that one didn't alter it, right? That was another example where he already had the story and he's basically world building, retconning the story, right? So the Melian stuff didn't retroactively change the stories exactly. Um, with there, one of the things that we were seeing was this, um, was Idril, right? Um, uh, why, why is Idril uh, an only child? And we see him making changes to the story. Um, he took the past tragic romance story of Finrod Felagund from the earlier drafts, the stuff that's in the published Silmarillion, um, namely that he was in love with one of the, or you know, was betrothed to one of the Vanyar, but she didn't come with him on the march, and so he's by himself. That is said explicitly of Finrod Felagund uh, in the published Silmarillion, um, and he had decided to transfer that to Turgon um, so that Idril came with Turgon, but left her mom behind, um, and her mom stayed. So her mom then becomes a bar- a Marie uh, of the Vanyar, and that's why uh, she's an only child. Anyway, um, uh, so so we see that stuff. What I want to be lo- focusing on this week, we're going to be focusing first on the all the stuff that Tolkien talks about about growth, uh, marriage, yes, childbearing, gestation, things like that. Some of the nuts and bolts um, of childbearing uh, and and growth. Um, and I want to make sure we stay focused on the big picture uh, to a, a large extent. What does this tell us 
about his world? What does this tell us about what, what are we learning about the elves? What are we seeing in Tolkien's imagination um, by these details that he's working out? And then, hopefully, if we get far enough, um, we will uh, get into the part where he's really beginning to roll up his sleeves and sit down and apply it to his story, right? Um, this is the one of the, you know, the passage that chapter six, as I was mentioning, um, in chapter six, we're going to get to the stuff which, honestly, this to me, this is, you know, I said before, you know, my new answer after reading this book, even after reading only the first few chapters of this book, my um, my my answer um, to the question, why didn't Tolkien finish this? You know, why didn't he rewrite the Silmarillion? Why didn't he do it? Um, has already changed, right? You know, the answer now is he did. He he started. Like, he was actually legitimately working on it. Um, and we'll see that. I mean, I think chapter six seems clearly, it's not the beginning of the Silmarillion, um, because it's clearly written in that mode, like, to himself, right? Um, he's on paper thinking things through, right? But he is beginning explicitly to go back and say, all right, let's start at the beginning, the awakening of the elves. Um, what does this mean? What do we have to do? How do we have to, in order to turn my old stories into an, the new kind of story that I'm now writing, what do we have to do? What do we have to change? Um, I might have said something rash before, like Tolkien perhaps was daunted by the size of the task. Christopher seems to imply that. And now, look, I'm not trying to say that I'm right and Christopher's wrong about that kind of thing. If Christopher says that, you know, his father seemed overwhelmed by the size of the project, I don't doubt it that he actually felt that way. But he was not so daunted by it that he didn't have a go, right? Because he did. He did. And that's what we see in this book. And that's what's so... Um, uh, uh, the, that's what's so interesting. Um, okay, Tomas is asking, why are the Vanyar now called Ingar and the Noldor called the Njoldor? Yeah, I don't even know how to pronounce an N with a tilde over it at the beginning uh, of a word. Like, I don't even know how to do that. Um, like, with my mouth. I just don't know. How to, how to do that. Um, Njoldor? Yeah, basically? Okay. I mean, I, I, all I can say about the Njoldor thing, uh, Tomas, which, for, for my money, is not a step forward uh, in, uh, uh, in, you know, euphony or whatever, but... Um, um, uh, okay, now Bjarnasoner is suggesting, so I can, I can see you there, Bjarnasoner, suggesting that it's a velar nasal, so something like... Like it's not just nya, uh, yeah. It's like ngaldo, ngaldo. I I can't do that. I can't do that. I just I I think I I'm insufficiently talented uh, to do that. Um, like an ng, ngaldo. Yeah, I I'm not sure I can. Um, but um, anyway, what seems pretty clear there is that this is Tolkien. Re, you know, he's just, you know, jiggering the stages of Quenya, right? The evolution of the sounds and the w words and forms um, uh, in um, 
in in Quenya. So, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. No, be honest, owner. I, I I believe it's normal in a lot of languages, just not mine. And so I personally struggle with it. So I can only apologize uh, <laughs> for that because I struggle with that. Um, so I'm probably not going to try it so as not to butcher it. Uh, maybe I'll get better. But um, um, uh, anyway, okay. Uh, so let's read about Chubb with, with that preamble. Let's actually read the slide. An elven child was born in its mother's womb for about the same relative time as a mortal child. That is, for about three-quarters of a youth year, three-quarters of twelve loar. Nine equals nine loar. Though in the Quendi, this period was more variable, often being less, and on rare occasions being more. It is said that Feanor remained in the womb for one growth year, twelve loar. So he, um, he baked an extra long time, did Feanor. The Onolume, or Time of the Children, was in normal lives a continuous series, occupying some twelve to sixty years. The interval between the birth of a child and the next birth was usually one growth year, equals twelve loar, but was often more, and in a continuous series tended to become longer, more rest being needed between each birth, thus twelve loar before the second birth, twenty-four before the third, thirty-six before the fourth, forty-two before the fifth, and forty-eight before the sixth. But the intervals could be longer and not necessarily in exact twelves. Okay, let's pause for a second. Um, uh, let's pause for just a second to um, note uh, just sort of the obvious thing. Uh, and I can't figure out whether this is on purpose or not. Did he make a mistake there, do you think? 12, 24, 36, 42, 48, right? I mean, that's not perfect 12s, right? He introduced a, a gap of six in there um, with the 42. The 42 doesn't work. Um, and I can't decide whether I think that's a mistake on his part. It's possible. I mean, goodness, remember all of this stuff. None of this stuff is, like, revised and checked. All of this stuff is, uh, you know, scribbled with pen, you know, on random sheets of paper. So uh, I'm not in any way trying to critique any mistakes, and it's possible that he could just make a mistake. Um, but um, but I'm wondering uh, if there's... Some, I, but I want to I I, I just assume it's a mistake. Um, it, it might be. Um, but... Um, but I don't want to just assume it's a mistake, because I'm wondering if he, if he hadn't done that, it would have been 36, 48, 60, of course, uh, before the 6th. Um, is there a reason? Tony, that's what I was wondering. Maybe he didn't want to go beyond 60. Um, maybe there's, maybe there's um, a reason, um, you know, a reason that... Um, uh, he wanted, he was compressing the intervals in the latter half of this, not just going off in a, in a, in a, in a perfectly continuing on in a perfectly linear fashion. Um, but having those gaps begin to get, well, well, that, that not the gaps, but the rate of increase decreasing. So it's the first differential that's smaller, not the actual number. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. So, um, 
so the the period is increasing drow snake after births it's just if his numbers are to be believed here right under the assumption that he's not making a mistake so okay so you've got baby one is born right baby one is born and then they wait for 12 years 12 lower 12 sun years right so one yen right they wait for one year Let's just let's just use the yen for now, right? The 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 one one single year of uh, you know valiant year. Okay, so you have a baby, and then you wait a year, and after one year you have another baby. Okay, so then your other baby is born. Your baby number two is born. Baby number two is born, and then you have to wait two years before you can muster up baby number three, right? And then baby number three is born, and then you wait three and a half years or uh, no, wait. Okay. No, sorry. After three, three years. Right. And then after baby number three is born, you wait three and a half years. And then after baby four is born, you wait four years for baby. I think I screwed it up, but anyway, you, you see what I mean, right? Like there's first you're waiting an increase of 12 of, of one year every time. And then it's six months after that, uh, between four, five and six. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, the first sentence does say 12 to 60 years. Yes, I see that. It's one of the reasons why I, but honestly, Chad, that's, um, I can't decide whether I think that makes it more or less likely that he just made the, you know, made a slip when writing out the series at the end of the paragraph. Um, Cause if you didn't have that number, if you didn't mean it right to be 60, then you could, you know, get up to 48 and be like, well, that's an even 12. I must be done without having noticed that you slipped a six in between. Right. But if you're saying like, it starts with 12 and ends with 60. And then you write a list that starts with 12 and ends with 48. You'd, you'd be more likely to notice that, wouldn't you? I mean, I just, it strikes me as, it seems to me to make, uh, to make an inaccuracy, to just like a simple slip, a little bit less likely. Um, uh, but, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, Stephen, I agree. If he had just, the fact that he adds six once and then six again um, does seem to make it a little bit less likely. Um, wait a second. Wait a second. Is it 60, <clears throat> excuse me, 60 total years? If the time of the children was in normal lives a continuous series, occupying some 12 to 60 years, 12 is the minimum. So that means you've got, you've got one kid, right? One kid means that the time of the children occupies 12 years, right? Whereas six kids would go to 60 years, right? Total. Total. Um, see, but Chad, I don't think that child number one being on year zero can be... Um, uh, can be reconciled with the fact that the Onolume occupies 12... It doesn't occupy 0 to 60 years, 
it occupies 12 to 60 years. Um, yeah. Um, exactly. Right. So, Chad, if child one is on year zero, Huh. No. It doesn't add up in sequence. Because you've got to add them up in total. You've got 12 years. Now, hang on a second. When he says 12 to 60 years at the beginning of that paragraph, are we sure he means Loar there? I know that gets really dodgy. Um... Yeah, exactly. Exactly, First Fish. Child 6 would be on year 162. So, yeah, yeah, hang on. Okay. Um, all right. Yes. <laughs> it's... it's <laughs> I, okay, hang on. I need a calculator. Um... If he means yeni there, 12 to 60 yeni for the Onolume as a whole, he has to. Because you've got, say you have three kids, right? You've got 36 years just of waiting time, right, in between those three kids. Um, uh, yeah. Not to mention, remember, the gestation itself is nine each, right? So your minimum, uh, you know, you have uh, the nine lower. Let's even, for argument's sake, in order to keep the math in my head simpler, right? Let's just imagine they all have Feanorian gestation, right? Uh, all of them are gestating for one yen, right? Um, okay, no, let's do it in lower. Let's do it in lower for 12 lower. Okay, let's take it. Take it. Into... No, never mind. Fine, 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 fine. We'll do it. We'll do it in lower, and we'll do real numbers. So, gestate for nine lower, right? Nine years of the sun. Then you've got to take a twelve lower break. So we're up to twenty-one total lower, right? We're at year twenty-one. If conception is the kickoff, is kickoff day of the Onolume, right? Uh, the day of conception of child number one is when it begins, which I'm not assuming, by the way. Um, it could be that, like, that time of the children doesn't necessarily have to be, like, you know, you know, that one, one might perhaps kick off the Onolume slightly less spectacularly than that. But anyway, okay, okay, okay. So, um, but even assuming that, we've got nine, to, nine uh, years to the first birth, plus 12, so 21 to the uh, second conception, right? Plus nine, so we're up to 30 uh, when child two is born. Now, after child two, uh, we have to... Um, after child two, we have to wait another 24 years. So we were at 30, so we're at 54 now, up to the third. So 54 plus another nine now are for baby number three. Uh, so... Uh, 54, so we're at 63 years already 
for the, it's been 63 Loar from the conception of baby one to the birth of baby three. Right? So he can't, um, he can't mean, um, he, he can't mean 12 to 60 Loar. Clearly. Clearly. Could he, what do you mean 12 to 60 yen? So by the way, note, a yen is equaling nine, uh, 12 years here, not 144. I know he said 144 before, but this is after he's begun to introduce that fun distinction between the years of growth and the years of life, I think. Anyway, 1 to 12 clearly is the ratio that he's working with here. Um, so 144 to 160 years is the time of the Onolume. Um, and that makes sense to me. If he's saying the Onolume, the time of the children, tends to last 144 till, what, 720 uh, Loar, right? That's the period of time in which the Onolume, the time of the children, is happening. I, and I don't think um, that he is... Um, uh, I don't think that he is imagining the time of the... He's not defining, I don't think, the time of the children merely as like the biological processing period, right? It's it's bigger. It's bigger than that. Um, it's bigger than that. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, do you see what I mean? Um, okay, now, Stephen, you're technically right that it does say 12 Loar before the second birth and not 12 Loar before the second conception. You're right. You're right. Um, so are you saying that the nine Loar of gestation could count in there? Even still. Right, okay, so that spares us, you know, a few. It gets us down to 36. It's possible. It's possible. Um, it's really funny, isn't it? Because most of the time, these kinds of dis decisions we're trying to make here, these kinds, I would normally say, like, I think we're being a little too, we have to be careful not to be too literal here, right? Not to be, except we're talking about the guy who did long division out to what? 360 decimal places. <laughs> so, uh, no, I'm going to go ahead and say, no, uh, we don't have to worry too much about being, uh, uh, paying too much attention to detail. This is exactly, um, this is exactly the kind, the kind of thing, um, that, uh, he's clearly working out. Um, uh, Senalisha, I tend to agree with you very much. Um, uh, that if we include the gestation, the nine lower of the gestation period in the period before the second birth, it makes for a terribly short rest period before the second conception. That seems to me, though I agree that he does say before the second birth, and so a, a purely, um, you know, rigid and literal reading of that does suggest that it seems to me to be entirely contrary to the spirit of what he's talking about in this paragraph. Um, the interval between the birth of a child and the next birth was usually one growth year. He talks, cause he's gonna go on to talk about how much it takes out of you. 
um, how they have to and why it has to be more and more all the time, how they have to like recover themselves, um, how much more of their um, how much more of their own, you know, fair and Roar elvish parents, both parents put into the child um, than is normal for mortals. And so it does seem to me um, that that um, that first one would be really, really small. I mean, there's almost no gap there. With Feanor, there would have been no gap at all. Uh, I mean, goodness, there's the, there, there wouldn't even be time for, for his sibling to gestate, <laughs> right? I, I mean, if, if Feanor had been a second child in this schema, he'd have had to been conceived on his, you know, older brother's birthday, right? Um, it, it seems that it's... Um, uh, it seems that it's that, that, I mean, those are really pushing, uh, one onto another. Um, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I wonder, it's possible that that's what he meant. That basically, yep, you only just need a little breather between number one and number two, but then after that, you know, it's a little more, it's a little more severe. It's possible that he meant that. It's possible that he's not really doing it. I mean, the word "some" in occupying some twelve to sixty years suggests to me that that phrase "occupying some twelve to sixty years" is not the result of a mathematical sum. That sounds like. He is um, spitballing, right? Um, uh, he's giving an estimate. And then after that, he's doing the math. Um, and the math is not going to necessarily agree with it. Or, But again, it would agree if he did it right. I don't even understand. Um, but... Um, yeah, and I agree, Stephen. I know that this is, these are tendencies and not a hard, fast rule for every single birth. I'm just saying, what I'm trying to make sure that I'm understand, and, and I believe Tolkien loves the math. I mean, he's enjoying doing this math. Nobody who does 380, long division by hand, 380 decimal places or whatever, is not enjoying the math, right? So he's enjoying the math, clearly. Um but it's not the math for the math's sake, right? Um, this is, he is doing this for a purpose. And the purpose behind the math, um, the purpose behind the math is the story, right? Is to explain the world, is to show, his, it's his concept of the elves and how the elves live and how they grow um, and how they tick, right? How they operate. Um, that's what he's working out here. And so I don't ever want to get so lost in the math that we forget that. But at the same time, we can't ignore the math. And it's worth thinking the math through because that's how he was deciding these things. That's how he was. It is clearly one of the primary ways here in which, you know, when he's sitting down to do some, um, you know, down and dirty world building here, uh, math is one of the primary things that we are seeing him, uh, him doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And Michael, you're right. The math will force changes in the story. It's one of the ways, Michael, I think that we can see him. Uh, another thing that I would say about his math impulse here, right? Because I mean, one can ask that question, like, why is he doing the math? Like no one's, no one's forcing him to do the calculations. He doesn't actually have to, he could just stick with that first phrase, occupying some 12 to 60 years. Who's going to be like, now hang on. (laughs) Like, does that work out mathematically? No. Like he could just, if he didn't have any numbers down at the bottom half of this paragraph, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? Because we wouldn't be, um, uh, you know, he's given us fuel to, to do this. But again, why? Why is he doing the math? Why is he allowing, Michael, you might ask, to, uh, to the math to force changes in the story, right? Um, and I think um, the answer is, um, I think the answer is objectivity, right? Um, he is... He has some fairly strict definitions of what it means for a story to work, right? Um, Think even how this grew in The Lord of the Rings. We've talked about the example of the lunar charts that he made up, right? So that, you know, if you'd asked Tolkien, he could have told you on any given day in The Lord of the Rings, what phase was the moon in on that day, right? He he worked all that stuff out because that is part of his... um, that is part of his, uh, uh, like, test. You know, it's part of what it means for the story to have, um, you know, that ring of truth, that ring of authenticity. So clearly, he had made the decision. It's it, We've had enough hand-waving, right? All of the original mythology is big hand-waving, right? Then the elves awoke by Quivienen. And sometime later, Orame came among them saying, right? Like, that's how the original story kind of works, right? And so, but he's not content with that. He's not, as we'll see, he's like, no, 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 no. That's not okay. That's not okay anymore. Not in the kind of story that he's now wanting to write. He wants it to work, right? He wants it to work, Um Internal consistency is really important to him, Michael. And the math gives objective authenticity, right? Um, If he has to wave his hands at it, if he has to, if he can't show how it works, then it's not going to have that ring of truth. So clearly the math for him is something that he embraces immediately, thoroughly. Right. In this project. Um, And it makes sense. It fits very, it jives perfectly with that same impulse for uh, internal consistency. Michael, that's exactly it. Um, (laughs) Arthur Harrow says this tale grew exponentially in the telling. Yes, this tale grew exponentially in in the telling asymptoting at. um, Exactly. Exactly. Um, Yes. yeah, Tony, and it's interesting. He has the time in retirement to devote himself to this, which he couldn't do in his working life. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe this is um, uh, this is a retirement project now, right? So, uh, yeah, he can he can he can afford to do the sums. He can spend as much time doing long division as he wants to. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Now, Cajun Math Joe uh, on Twitch says, I think Tolkien's at his best when he's most specific. The Lord of the Rings is more specific and detailed than the Silmarillion. And I think that's one of the uh, one of the former's greatest strengths over the latter, even though the latter is quite beautiful. Well, uh, Cajun Math Joe, I would it depends on what you're looking for. Right. It depends on what you're looking for. The two of them are in very Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings are in very different storytelling modes. Right. And each one works well as a story of its own kind. Now, I do agree. The Silmarillion does not work as well as The Lord of the Rings, even for a story of its own kind. But the reason for that is that the Silmarillion doesn't fully know what kind of story it is, right? This Because the Silmarillion, what we call the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion, is Christopher Tolkien having, having no recourse but to stitch together different drafts of different things which were often in quite different modes, Right. Um, And not really doing one single thing. I mean, the kind of storytelling that we get, for instance, in the Children of Hurin is very different from the kind of storytelling we get, for instance, in the Ainulindale. Right. Those are just not the same genre of story. Um, And he, Christopher, is pulling material from close narratives like the Children of Hurin, like many of the Baron and Luthien traditions, um, to um, uh, this sort of. Uh, overview, plot summary, uh, legendary tales like we get in the Fall of Gondolin material um, from the published Silmarillion um, to annals, um, annal entries like we get in the description of the Darkening of Valinor in the published Silmarillion. Um, So all of those things, those are three very different genres that he's working in. And one of the things that we see in... Um, in this period, like one of the, with, with all this, with all this math, with all these calculations, he's committing, right? He's committing and he's saying, I'm not doing any of those things, right? I'm not doing, I know in delay mode, right? I'm not doing legend and myth mode. I'm not doing annals and chronicles mode. Um, and I'm not doing legendary history like the children of Hurin. I'm doing internally consistent um, sort of, I want to say something like realistic narrative. I mean, he, uh, he, he, he wants to do it all in the mode of the Lord of the Rings and with the kind of rigor and internal consistency. Um, that the Lord of the Rings had. Matthew, that is exactly right. He wants everything set out fair and square with no contradictions. And what better way to make sure that everything is set out fair and square with no contradictions than math, right? Doing the sums and making sure that you can back up what you say, right? That when you say... um, they remained in Quivienen for this amount of time and then they moved on. D- does that work? Is that Could that happen, right? Um, is that something that people are going to be able to invest, the kind of secondary belief that, you know, generations of people have successfully invested in the Lord of the Rings? Um, yeah. <laughs> George says, I think Christopher was quite happy to hand this one over to Carl. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I have to admit, George, even in the first few chapters, there are a couple times that I've been thinking, you know, 
this stuff is amazing. I'm so glad that we're getting this stuff. But at the same time, I'm so not surprised that Christopher was just like, you know what? No, <laughs> I'm not including this stuff in the history of Middle Earth. I'm just going to give this stuff a miss. Um, I, but um, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. Now, Lupita, you're absolutely right. Um, this does not feel like which, what, what we're reading right now doesn't feel like the Lord of the Rings, but neither do his moon charts, right? Um, or his uh, lists of chronology um, or his discussions of linear measures on the map of the Lord of the Rings, right? All that stuff happens behind the scenes. What we're reading is behind the scenes, right? most of it, right? Some of this stuff I do think does seem like it was intended or he was at least toying with the idea of actually writing this stuff up for publication as an appendix or something. But remember, in that sense, Lupita, it does not sound unlike, um, say, what uh, Appendix D? Is that the calendar one? Appendix D in The Lord of the Rings? I think that's the calendar one. You know, read that one. If you haven't read that one in a while, go back and read that one, right? It sounds kind of like this, actually, right? You can easily believe uh, that this and that were written by the same person. Um, so what we're what we're seeing is backstage, right? Um, he wants Lupita, I believe, to build a narrative that is going to rest on the foundation of all of this calculating and figuring, like the Lord of the Rings was able to rest on things like his moon charts and his uh, mile calculators and all of those things. Very little of it appears. Occasionally, you can see him, for instance, tossing out how many leagues exactly Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas ran across the fields of Rohan, right? Sometimes this, it, it makes it into the narrative. Um, uh, sometimes, you know, when the, uh, uh, when the, the uh, new moon pops up as thin as a nail pairing after they leave uh, uh, Lorien. It becomes relevant which phase the moon is in. Um, sometimes these things peak um, uh, into the narrative. Um, but I doubt much of this stuff would have um, um, would have appeared much more uh, than, than those things. Um, okay. Um, Cool. All right. Um, let's see. Yeah, Stephen was just uh, quoting um, the beginning of Appendix D. Yep, that's the one. That's the one I'm talking about. Okay. Um, I'm not sure I have totally unconfused myself. Indeed, I may have reconfused myself a little further uh, on the exact math here, but let's continue on because we'll get some more here. Okay. Um, this is the passage with a special with special uh, bonus conclusion, um, which I'm sure many of you noticed. In their beginning, the Quendi grew at a rate in which the unit was the yen or elven year, which was 144 mortal years. If then an elf child grew to a maiden and a young woman in about 20 years, 
wedded at 25, and bore her first child at 26, her age in mortal terms would be 2,880 at maturity, 3,600 at wedding, and 3,744 at childbirth. Now, um, I, first of all, yeah, and now a yen is back to 144 years and not 12 years. I cannot explain that. Um, I know later in chapter five, in the next chapter, he's going to, that's when he explains the two separate, like it sometimes equals 12 and sometimes equals 144. Um, but, um, so I, I don't, I can't explain why it's now 144 and it was 12 before other than, um, 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 other than simply, Perhaps. So either he's already beginning to toy with that idea of a yen, it means one thing sometimes and another thing another time, which he's going to explain more explicitly later. Or, as seems more likely, he's just flip-flopping. He's just going back and forth. Um, He is not quite making up his mind as to how many, um, exactly how long he wants to protract elf development in terms of human years. Um, Exactly, Tony. Tony uh, uh, sees exactly the bonus content. Here's my question. How old was Arwen when she got married? Could somebody do the math for me? uh, Appendix B, Tale of Years. You see her birth near the beginning of the first, third age. You see her Marriage year, right? How old was Arwen when she got married to Aragorn? And it's funny because when you're reading the book, it's like, whoa. There's even that moment, right, in the narrative of Aragorn and Arwen when he realizes that this, you know, beautiful young lass that he had taken, you know, for a beautiful young lass turns out to be thousands and thousands of years old. Right. Um, And so there's this sense of like incredible antiquity to Arwen, right? That she is this, she is not a young lass. She is this timeless elf maiden, right? Uh, And, you know, he is, he is in fairy, right? Um, So how many years of the sun? Who did the math? Twenty-seven seventy-eight. Yeah, there it is. She was two thousand seven hundred and seventy-eight years old. I knew it was less than three thousand because, uh, you know, just because of that, she was not born. She was born a couple hundred years after uh, the third age began. So yeah, twenty-seven seventy-eight, right? Um, twenty-seven seventy-eight. She was. Alas, right? Aragorn's robbing the cradle. Holy cow, she's not even full grown yet. <laughs> she's not even she's not even mature. <laughs> right? She's it's, this is this will, will be illegal in some states, <laughs> right? I mean, holy cow. Uh <laughs> she's 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 not supposed to get married for another 800 years. After, <laughs> oh my goodness, the scandal, right? 
Oh, good grief. Uh, this, it's like a shotgun wedding. Not to mention the fact that, like, normally she would wait a decent 144 years between her wedding and her childbirth. And, oh, man, when is their son born? I don't know, but spoiler, it's less than 144 years out. So, um, and I know by that time she becomes mortal and it accelerates, I know. But, um, um, uh, but yeah, exactly, Arthur. No wonder Elrond was creeped out about Aragorn dating Arwen. He could have been arrested. I know, right? Uh, holy cow. It's just unbelievable. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so you're right. Aragorn's mom was really young, too. Uh, yeah, so it's just, uh, you know, um, following the impe- his impetuous family line there, Aragorn was, I guess. Um but uh, yeah, so um, it's just, I'm saying it's um, a little a little bit of a scandal, right? A little bit of a scandal. Um, uh, not really. I, I hope everyone understands. I'm not actually accusing Aragorn of anything inappropriate. Um, but it really, to me, the the richness of the comedy of that situation uh, is simply that um, is simply that. The, the conflict, the utter shift, right, conceptual shift between how we are, um, uh, how we are perceiving Aragorn in the story, like when we're seeing it, like from Aragorn's perspective in Appendix A, right, um, in which we, um. In which we get, I know he's going to do a math for Arwen in a later chapter. Um, this is only here, but it just, it's the one thing I could think of when I saw, because as soon as I saw those numbers floating right around 3,000, I immediately thought of Arwen. And I'm like, hmm. Because again, remember, a lot of his story, a lot of his numbers, right? A lot of his estimations here are being seem to be being based on the stories. So I was I was interested to see first if there was actually a correlation here. And in a sense, there is. In a sense, there is, right? Um, and, and this is back just what I was about to say about the phenomenal change in conception. Not um, child conception. Let me change that. Uh, the phenomenal change in conceit, right, of the story. Um, when Arwen is 2,778 years old when she marries, right? When that statement, in the book, we are taught, right? In the Lord of the Rings, we are taught to gloss that sentence. The sentence, Arwen was 2,778 years old when she was married. We're taught to gloss that by, by the context of the Lord of the Rings as immortal maiden elven wise right we're 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 told to gloss this as he is by marrying arwen he is touching the timeless right he is there's this connection with the elder days i know it's the early third age which is not technically but you see what i mean right he is the he is the the elder king right he is the last king of the old he is the link back to the elder days and so his marriage that's one of the things that his marriage shows us, right? Um, that's the cue that we get 
from the Lord of the Rings in how to understand the significance of the sentence, Arwen was 2,778 years old. But then we come back to this first paragraph. Now, how do we understand the significance of the sentence? Arwen was 2,778 years old. Answer? She's a little young, but it's just about time for her to get married. <laughs> right? And that's very different. Right? Very different. Um, uh, yeah. Now, several of you are saying that she's half-elven, and I don't care. Um, uh, you, you can't be half an elf. Right? That was decided back uh, at the end of the first age. Right? You can't. Half-elves don't age at like, uh, you know, 72 mortal years per year or something like that. Like it, no, you're either an elf or you're not, right? You're either one of the first children or one of the second children. That's why they choose, right? Um, there's no, I mean, you can't, you can't be half immortal. It doesn't, it doesn't work, right? Either your fate is with the Eldar or your fate is with the mortals. So no, um, when Arwen is, um, Exactly. You either receive the gift of Iluvatar or you're not. So there's no like rounding down. There's no, um, uh, there's no, um, uh, uh, there's no, you know, splitting it in two or anything like that. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. Uh, but we'll get, I know he's going to change things later on. I know. And remember, no spoilers. I haven't even read chapter nine yet. We're not there. <laughs> We're not there yet. <laughs> um, I'm uh, I'm sticking I'm sticking to where to where we are. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. So no, Elrond is half elven, yes, but he is a whole elf as far as his as far as his uh, time and his existence and his you know uh, uh, relationship between Hroa and Fea and and all that stuff. Like if he continued on until he was you know, I mean, he's still a young chap, Elrond. Notice again, also, right? Could you have imagined that? Could you have imagined before this book came out, right? Back in the days before the nature of Middle Earth, would you ever have formed the sentence? Elrond is still a young chap, right? I mean, Elrond is old as dirt. I mean, yeah, he's not born until near the end of uh, uh, near the end of uh, uh, of the first age, but there's likely dirt that's younger than he is uh, by the time the end of the third age rolls around. I mean, Elrond is one of these, you know, living relics um, of. Um, of the of the first age, right? I mean, he is one of the physical ties uh, to the elder world, um, and yet now we are being taught to count up his years. Shoot, Elrond is what seven grand, maybe seven thousand. That's nothing. That's nothing. He's like still in the. Yeah, he's not even. He's not even middle aged. Um, why, why has his, why is he not getting invisible yet? Cause he's too young, right? He's still, he's still such a young chap. Um, so, uh, so yeah, anyway, um, Hey guys, stop giving me equivalents from later chapters. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these chapters and what we see. No spoilers. Um, 
Okay, so anyway, yeah, Elrond could still remarry and have kids. Well, is he still in Marian age? Yeah, he is. Now he wouldn't, because um, only Finway did that, and it was a bad idea. Um, uh, I mean, we don't want a rehash of that again. Um, but um, <laughs> Gilgoyd is trying to argue for him. It's true that his wife went to Valinor. Get- no, 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 no. Um, Elrond is not going to remarry. I can't imagine he's even tempted to remarry. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, well, Brandon, that's exactly the problem. Yes. Elrond's bride is still alive. You know, she's in Valinor, not the halls of Mandos. That's true. Um, so it's not even the same situation as, uh, um, as Finway, though Finway's situation is still awkward as anything. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah, exactly. So no, she's, she, she, she didn't actually die, right? She didn't actually die. Yeah. Um, uh, right. Okay. Right. So if you go with the strict 144, he's about 48. Great. Okay. Um, but remember being 48 for an elf, remember that how the, um, the kind of parallels to mortal time start to break down the older they get, right? It works well through like the twenties basically. But then after that, their life trajectories don't um, go in the same direction. Um, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Chris. uh, Yeah. Um, I haven't thought about that too much, but you're certainly right. That um, uh, uh, Calabrian and Elrond are probably going to have a long and uncomfortable conversation when he shows up uh, without their daughter. Um, but um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, exactly. You let Arwen do what uh, is exactly uh, that, you know, I turn my back for a few millennia and then what happens? Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway. So back to my original point, this recontextualizes everything, right? When we see Arwen as the equivalent of, you know, a 20 year old woman. um, And we see Elrond as somebody, you know, uh, well, again, middle age has no meaning. That's not a meaningful parallel, right? Somebody who is on the late end of his childbearing, you know, his child conceiving years of his, of his, of his family time years, right? Um, it's, um, it changes, it rocks your world, right? I mean, you literally can't look at things the same way. Um, and that's fascinating. It's fascinating that he has made that particular choice here or that he is willing to accept that consequence. Um, he's giving us a set. It's like, it's, it's like we have a set of elvish glasses through which to look at things. The Lord of the Rings is told from mortal gla- through, through mortal glasses, right? F- through mortal lenses. We're seeing the story from the mortal perspective. Really, we're seeing it from the Hobbit perspective, chiefly, right? But it's all from the uh, mortal perspective, for sure. Right. So people like Galadriel, Elrond, even Arwen seem immortal 
timeless, ancient, right? But now we're getting this like separate set of elvish glasses, right? Put on the elvish glasses and look at things and be like, oh, yeah. Okay, so here we have um, uh, uh, young lass Arwen and mature, uh, you know, Elrond just entering into his mature prime um, and uh, Galadriel, who's a, a lady of a certain age. Um, uh, and um, but still, you know, far from over the hill. Right. And um, and then you've got all these gadflies all over the place, right? Um, great question, Cecilia. Hey, somebody do the math. Edith is just asking the exact same question. How old was Elrond when he was at the last alliance? By the, with the 144-year calculation. Um, uh, with the, yeah, um, with the, the, the 144. Somebody calculate Elrond's age at the last, the battle of the last alliance. Is this, um, this is like a strapping young teenage Elrond going to war, right? Imagining Elrond in the Battle of the Last Alliance being something like the age of, uh, uh, you know, one of Tolkien's um, undergraduate classmates in World War One, something like that. Um, okay, Drowsnake says he gets 24 years. Maybe. Um, okay. Right. 3,600 years would be 25. Right. Okay. So early 20s. Early 20s. Yep. Okay. Early 20s. There you go. So, yeah. You know, he's um, more like... Um, yeah. He's like a, a you know, a young... Um, uh, you know, a, a young man, college age, just past college age, who enlisted for the war, right? Okay. Anyway, let's keep going. This speed of growth and rate of aging had nothing to do with the perception of time. As the Eldar say of themselves, and this may in some degree also be true of men, when persons in whole being Fea and Roa, are fully occupied with things of deep natural concern and of delight to them, and are in great bliss and health, time seems to pass quickly, and not the reverse. The minute enjoyment and appreciation of events and thoughts in the time series does not, as might be supposed, make time seem longer, as might a road or path that was minutely inspected. For that inspection could only be carried out by slowing the rate of normal travel, but the rate of normal progress through time cannot be slowed, but the speed of thought and action can be quickened so as to achieve more in a given space of time. Thus the Quendi did not and do not live slowly, moving ponderously like tortoises while time flickers past them in their sluggish thoughts. Indeed, they move and think swifter than men and achieve more than a man in any given length of time but they have a far greater native vitality and energy to draw upon so that it takes and will take a very great length of time to expend it. Okay. Um, so, um, excellent. Um, this is a really important distinction. And it's, it's funny, it's one of those things that 
until I read this, I hadn't realized that I'd been resisting that temptation. Like, he makes explicit here a temptation that I only realized after he does make it explicit that I had been experiencing, right? And that is when I try to imagine what it's like for the elves, for them to be taking so long to do all these things, pregnant for nine years, for instance, right? Nine years of pregnancy. Um, uh, For... You know, that that they will spend, you know, th- this whole 144 to 1 equivalency, right? That, like, to them, what feels like a year of their lives would feel like 144 years to mortals, right? Going back to that conversion, the way which, from the beginning, he has continually been inviting us to translate and convert um, units, here. Um, but that's not just a unit conversion thing. It's keeping these two things in contact, right? Again, we have our elf glasses to look at things, but we're constantly through those elf glasses looking at the mortal world, right? We're, he's constantly anchoring what he's describing about the elves in terms of lore, in terms of the years of the sun, in terms of mortal experience, um, so exactly, um, Sharon, elves are not Entish. Um, and yes, Stephen, I was thinking of the same thing. For those of you who don't play the Lord of the Rings online, uh, there's this wonderful moment. Um, I really, I, I think this is very, very clever. Um, there's this, um, when they're doing, they have this session where you can play through the Entmoot, right? Um, but you play it from the point of view of... One of the ants, it's Quickbeam, if I'm remembering correctly, that you're playing. So you're, 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 you're playing through the Entmoot as Quickbeam, right? Or maybe it's as Treebeard, but anyway, as one of the ants, right? Um, and the way they do it is they show you're moving in normal time, right? And the other ants are moving and speaking in normal time, and you're having a normal conversation with the other ants. But Merry and Pippin are there, um, in the frame. And little Mary and Pippin are running around doing things and talking to each other and sitting there and kicking their feet and everything, but they're doing it in very rapidly accelerating time. So when you watch the the picture, when you watch on the screen, again, you're, you're watching the ants all moving and t- talking in a perfectly normal pace. And the, the hobbits are flitting around uh, in this like very, very rapidly accelerated frame, which I think is really funny. I think that's that's a, a, a really amusing way to think about like what the um, what the Entmoot looked like from the Entish perspective instead of what we got in the book, which is what it looked like uh, from a Hobbit perspective. Um, and this is exactly not what it's like, the difference between elf thought and human thought between elf time and mortal time. It is not that they're just moving slowly all the time. And it's tempting to think that. Like, you're, oh man, it takes you a whole 144 years to do what I can do in one year as far as growth and development and that kind of thing. Um, elves must just be super slow. And he emphasizes, no, it's the other way around. Right. 
they don't experience time differently because they're moving more slowly than humans. They're doing it because they're moving more fast. It's exactly what this is, is a longitudinal application of the time flies when you're having fun principle, right? When you are, you know, he's like, this is the glimpse. This is the glimpse that humans have into what it's like to be an elf, right? What it's like to be an elf. You think about um, being fully occupied with things of deep natural concern and delight to them. When you are doing something that you love doing and you're fully occupied with it, right? 100% of your attention is on this thing that you love doing and you are happy and healthy. You're not distracted by any negative impulses around you, right? Any sadness or, you know, something from the environment, any any uh, uh, health, any, uh, any uh, uh, sickness or discomfort in your own body, right? When you are in that state, Time seems to pass really, really quickly. And that's how elves are all the time. All the time. Time is always passing like that to them. So they take years to do something, not because it takes them longer, but because they have more stamina to do it. Right? Um, just like when we... Um, what's the other, um, the other, uh, uh, whenever, I mean, I hope that all of you have had this experience, this time flying experience, right? When you're just so wrapped up in something that all of a sudden it's like five hours later and you're like, no way. How did that possibly happen? That was never five hours. Right. Um, but what always happens, right? Um, almost um uh almost every time i know for me almost every time that has happened um the phrase that i usually find myself saying at the end of that blissful time is oh crap <laughs> right like uh i'm late for something or i like uh was supposed to be doing something else or um uh, i like we don't have the leisure to live like that all the time, right? Um, we don't have the um, uh, the the energy to live like that all the time. I mean, we drop dead eventually um, because of not eating and not sleeping, and I could just like our metabolisms couldn't maintain it. Uh, that kind of to 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 be like that all the time, right? Um, every day without irresponsibility. Right. Without shirking responsibilities, without, um, you know, and, and without wearying, without and any of those things. Um, that's. Um, uh, that is. Pretty remarkable. Right. It's that's a that's an amazing and an amazingly blessed kind of existence. Right. That thing that we have a taste of and only in limited circumstances and frankly, often in stolen moments um, and even at inappropriate times, um, even time when, you know, um, we often have to apologize to somebody <laughs> after having one of these experiences. Right. Um, elves, this is that's just that that's their world. That's the world that they live in. Um the minute enjoyment and appreciation of events and thoughts in the time series. 
That is his description of Elvish experience, the minute enjoyment and appreciation of events and thoughts in the time series. That's how elves live. That's how they do everything. And yes, Senoesia, that's exactly why they make such good rope, right? And other things. Why why elvish stuff is so good. And remember um, the offhand comment? Um, we put the thought of all that we love into all that we make, right? Um, their minute, minute enjoyment and appreciation of things goes into, of like all the things, goes into the things that they're doing and making, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, anyway, that is, this is a really, really important thing to remember about elves and elf experience. And we have to be continuously keeping this in mind when we're constantly being brought back to equivalencies here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I loved this passage. This was so cool. And by the way, some serious evidence in support of that theory that I was um, suggesting in our discussion of Morgoth's ring. Gestation, therefore, proceeds according to the growth and aging scale of the Quendi and occupies three quarters of a yen or 108 mortal years. So now gestation is 108 mortal years. So depending on whether we do the 12, you know, being pregnant for nine years was bad enough, right? Being pregnant for 108 years... Well, but remember, it's a different experience for elf mothers. Um, uh, elf mothers presumably don't get preeclampsia. Um, and I don't think that your like feet are swollen and aching, you know, for like 60 years or something like that. Um, uh, remember, pregnancy and childbirth are different for elves uh, uh, than they are for uh, people. Um, I saw some people, by the way, commenting that uh, uh, about birth and getting pregnant again and stuff that it seemed, um, obvious that, um, uh, that Tolkien was a man. Yes. But I would say a man who has four children, right? Um, so, um, I doubt, uh, totally unaware of his wife's experience <laughs> during, uh, the four pregnancies, uh, of their children. Um, but, um, Anyway, uh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Crinky Dinkers is your name? Um, morning sickness every morning for 60 years. Yes, that's exactly what I think we are not supposed to be imagining uh, there. Um, okay. 108 mortal years gestation. During all this time, the parents are aware of the growth of the unborn child and live in much longer and more deeply felt joy and expectation, for childbirth is not among the Eldar accompanied by pain. It is nonetheless not an easy or light matter, for it is achieved by a much greater expense of the vigor of Froa and Fea, or of youth, as the Eldar say, than is usual among men, and is followed after the begetting by a time of quiescence and withdrawal. The elf women also are usually quiescent and withdrawn before and after the birth. For these reasons, the Eldar did not, if they could avoid it, enter into the time of the children in times of trouble or wandering. There were thus no marriages or births during the Great March, 
nor again during the journey of the Noldor from Amman to Beleriand, and births were few during all the war against Morgoth. For the same cause, men who had dealings with the Eldar often saw far less of the elf women, and might even be unaware that some elven king or lord had a wife. For the withdrawal and quiescence of the wife might occupy the whole time of his sojourn among the Eldar, or indeed much of his whole mortal lifetime. For this withdrawal, occupying from three to four months or twelfths of a year, that is, one quarter to one third of a yen, would in mortal terms endure for about 36 to 48 years. Um, do you get it? You see what he did there? You see what he did there? Exactly, Drow Snake. Everyone complains that there are no female characters in the Silmarillion, Right? Of course there are no female characters in the Silmarillion. Okay, there are female characters in the Silmarillion, but why do we get all of these elf dudes, right? We don't hear, like, the published Silmarillion. What's Fingolfin's wife's name? Uh, does Fingolfin have a sister? Spoiler. Yes. What's her name? We don't know. Now, this is where I, what I was alluding to in Morgoth's Ring. When we were discussing Morgoth's Ring, we were looking at some of his initial revisions of some of that earlier material. And one of the trends um, that I was observing, right, at the time was that I was... It was interesting. It was interesting that um, he seemed to me to be actively going out of his way to rectify the there are not enough women involved. Like we're underselling the women involved here. Problem, right? I mean, he did seem to be going out of his way, not just to um, amplify some of the female characters that were there, like Aravel, for instance, um, but that he was going out of his way to add in, add back in the women that had been skipped when he had been doing the other genre, when he had just been talking about you know, the kind of legendary survey. And he hadn't been dealing with, like, the intimate family life, right? Why did he not talk about Mrs. Fingolfin? Because Mrs. Fingolfin didn't play a role in the story, right? I mean, she wasn't she wasn't part of that. Um, you know, she didn't come along with him, and they didn't tag-team Morgoth, you know, uh, uh, at the end there. Um, so since she wasn't involved in that story, um, she was... You know, and uh, the only other there, there are two reasons that we're interested in Fingolfin at all, right? One is the um, uh, the part that he played in the stories, and the other was genealogically, which you know was going all father to son. So again, it makes a certain amount of sense. One can see how he could have told the original mythic stories in that way, but he went back in his revisions in Morgoth's Ring that we were looking at, and he's gone out of his way to add the female characters back and to explain these things that were not explained before about the sisters and the wives, especially, right? And now, what do we see? Now he's explaining why I got left out in the first place, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, come on. Didn't you LOL just a little bit, right? When you got to that sentence, um... Men who had dealings with the Eldar often saw far less than the elf women and might even be unaware that some elven king or lord had a wife. 
I mean, come on. That's funny. Right. I think that's funny. I think it's hilarious. Um, it's that there's the solution to the mystery, right? Many of the records, many of the annals, which of course were, um, uh, were handed down through the years by humans, right? Just uh, tragically downplayed. You know, the, the, even the very exist, they, they probably were legitimately ignorant. They didn't know her name. Right. They didn't even realize he was. I mean, they figured like they deduced, presumably, that he was married. But um, anyway, I, I that's that's funny. Right. I, 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 I thought that was hilarious. Um, uh, yes, James, you're right. It's in the same vein as the fullest notion that there are no dwarf women. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, now, this is just one gesture and he's not going to sit here. And I agree, it doesn't fully work. It's not like every single missing woman can be explained because she's in, you know, her uh, 48-year confinement at that time, right? Like, it's, that's, uh, um, it doesn't really explain everything. I mean, uh, uh, Fingolfin's wife was not, in fact, uh, quiescent for childbirth reasons, you know, during the, um, you know, the war against Morgoth. Um, but, um, but Brandon, exactly. It turns out mortals are really bad about asking their elven hosts about their families. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, uh, so anyway, um, yeah, good. Stephen was thinking about the dwarf women thing too. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, that's actually a kind of a fun parallel. Now, again, he's not, I don't, well, Thus far, I have not seen him lean into this, um, but I thought that was a really, really fun uh, kind of impulse. But what's more, it fits. Let's not lose track of the big picture here. Um, the two things that I would say, last two things that I would say about uh, about this is that first, um, note what it emphasizes about the um, gestation experience, right? Um, <laughs> it, uh, it, it takes a good deal of provender to raise hobbit children, we're told in chapter one uh, of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, it takes a very great deal of your soul to gestate elf children, right? And body, right? Um, you are putting... If they put all, you know, the thought of all that they love and all that they make, their children not least, right? They are putting a lot of themselves, literally, literally both physically and spiritually. Both of those are literal, right? Um, they are putting themselves, especially the mom, but the dad also. And yes, Cajun Math Joe, that is exactly what drained Miriam. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so... Um, yeah. So that's it's just it's, it's it's a thing to remember. It's one of the one of the one of the elf stories, right? One of the elf concepts that he's insisting on that is really important. Um and yeah, we absolutely should be thinking about Muriel and Feanor, but again, notice how um in a sense this system is being described in order to not to justify but to contextualize that story. Um if we hadn't had the peculiar story of Muriel and Feanor, he might have 
this might have come out differently, right? But we did have Muriel and Feanor. He did have Muriel and Feanor already. And so this idea that the child takes something significant from you, your youth, right? Um, such that Feanor would just be the extreme example of that um, is, um, um, I think, uh, interesting. But, um, but more. Think about this in the context of what he just said about their experience of time passing, right? Because notice he begins with that here. The parents are aware of the growth of the unborn child and live in much longer and more deeply felt joy and expectation. That whole time flies while you're having fun thing? That's true of the 108 mortal years of gestation in this schema here. Um, far from suffering through morning sickness for 60 years and, 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 you know, swollen feet for 45 or whatever, um, uh, you know, preeclampsia for the last few decades, which were, which, which are really tough. Um, childbirth is unaccompanied by pain. And so therefore I presume many of these other uncomfortable symptoms of pregnancy, um, instead it's the time flies when you're having fun principle right? They are not only feeling joy and expectation, like vague joy and expectation. Um, they're living in a kind of communion with the child, which transcends anything that humans experience. They are aware of the growth of the unborn child. Um, Hundred and eight mortal years is going to go by like nothing um, because of the joy of the experience. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, that seems to be one of the things that he's implying here. All right, let's let's keep going. Back to the other math here. The Onolumere time of the children was in normal lives, a continuous series occupying some 12 to 60 years. Um, let's see. Was there, there was something else I wanted to emphasize here, but no, I, I think this is exactly the same. I must have forgotten I had already included this one. All right. We've thought about this again. But notice how he seems to be going back again to the 12 years. With a growth year equals 12 lower. Um, so I'm still not seeing the consistency here because he's just gone back to this again. Um, so I have to confess myself a little bit lost there. Um, yes, Tony, hang on a second. Let me pause and answer that question. Since the pain of childbirth is uh, uh, depicted uh, and certainly generally understood uh, throughout uh, the Catholic tradition as a consequence of the original sin for men, Genesis chapter 3, is he saying that elves are not under that condemnation? Yes, Yes, definitely. Um, he uses the word unfallen explicitly to refer to the elves on several occasions. Does this mean they're sinless? No. Does it mean they're incapable of sin? Obviously not, right? Um, does this mean they are immune to the marring of Arda and are themselves unmarred? No, they're marred from their beginning, but they are not fallen in the same way. Um, the thing that seems to me most clear 
uh, and I know not everyone is interested in this question, so I won't spend too much time on it. Um, but I think it, it remains an interesting question um, that if you are attempting to apply human originals, concepts of human original sin, um, any of the sort of traditional Christian or Catholic doctrines um, uh, about original sin and what that means and the impact on the freedom of the will or anything like that, um, uh, stop it because it doesn't apply to elves. That doesn't mean elves are perfect. It doesn't mean they can't sin. It doesn't mean they don't sin. Um, none of that. But it does mean they're not in the same situation that humans are in. Um, they have not come out the other side of the Genesis 3 experience. Uh, so, no. Um, uh, that's... Um, um, that is important. And again, it, it's hard to wrap our minds around it. Like if one is used to wrapping one's mind around this, from a Christian perspective, one tends to think fallen and unfallen means marred and perfect, right? The unfallen means perfect, sinless, innocent, um, uh, you know, without, you know, uh, without a uh, spot or wrinkle or any such thing, right? Um, that's, um, uh, that is not the elves, but the elves aren't fallen either. So again, those two categories, like how we think about unfallen man, you know, how Christians think about unfallen man and fallen mankind doesn't apply. Those two categories don't apply to elves. Um, uh, Stephen, that is exactly perfect. Uh, and I will even forgive you for applying a Lewis quote to Tolkien in this context, because I think you've, uh, th that is just wonderful. Uh, Stephen says, my son, it is not for you, a son of Adam, to know what faults an elf can commit. Um, quoting, of course, uh, uh, about stars, right, in uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Ramandu. Uh, it is, my son, it is not for you, a son of Adam, to know what faults a star can commit. Uh, not exactly the same, because, of course, um, uh, the sins of the elves are indeed a good deal more similar to the sins of the sons of Adam uh, than uh, uh, perhaps, as far as we know, the sins of stars are. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, oh, what is the Genesis three experience? Whew. Um, that's going to take a bit of explaining. Um, by the Genesis three experience, I mean, Genesis three is where it is described the sin of Adam and Eve, um, and how they lose their innocence and the condemnation under which they fall, which includes specifically things like pain in childbirth and bringing forth bread from the ground with labor and all these other things. Um, so the, um, the sin and consequences thing, which leads to the unfallen human state, or sorry, to the fallen human state is what I'm referring to as the Genesis three experience. Um, okay. Sorry. So yeah, it's, um, like I said, I don't want to spend too much time on that because, again, I know that that's not uh, uh, everybody's paradigm, though it's obviously relevant to Tolkien's paradigm. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, and Cajun Math Joe, I think it is very worth remembering that um, the number one thing, right, if there's, um, what's the number one difference between 
unfallen man and fallen man? Death. <laughs> Death. Mortality. Right? It's a big deal. Right? Um, but um, I, there's... Tolkien's already called that into question. Right? Not only for elves, right, in that the mortality of elves, which is present, though it's on a different, totally different scale, right, totally different time frame than mortal, than human mortality. Um, but they're still mortal, right? They're eventually going to die, right? They've got uh, their, um, um, you know, they get a lot more than three score and ten. Well, three score and ten what, I suppose. Uh, we just translate, uh, transition to a different unit of measure. Um, but, um, uh, uh, anyway, sorry. Point is, elves are still mortal, but even for a human mortality, death as the gift of Iluvatar already is changing the calculus a little bit. Um, uh, a substantial bit, actually. And those of you who have read his letters will see places where Tolkien is explaining to priests this, who are politely asking him, um... In what sense is death the gift of God to men? That's, um, to quote Monty Python, not exactly a one theory with our lot, you know. Um, uh, so, yes, I mean, that was an issue that Tolkien himself was working through. Um, that's kind of a piece of Tolkienian theology there. Um, but, um, Cecilia, okay, one more question. I will, I will, I will allow that. Um, any sin that separates... Uh, any sin separates a being from God. So if elves commit a sin, why do they not face consequences from God? Not saying they don't. I'm just saying they're not the same consequences. It's not the same situation. Um, it's not that there's something intrinsic in like pain in childbirth, for instance, which is like, yep, yeah, no, all sin is punished exactly that way in all species, no matter who does it, right? Now, again, in imagining this second incarnate species, right, of elves. Tolkien is imagining a situation not described in the Bible, right? So he's uh, 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 going blithely into unknown theological territory there, which is fine. That's what you do, right, as a writer of fiction. C.S. Lewis did the same thing in the Space Trilogy, very interestingly. Um, but um, but there are consequences. There are. Con it's just, they're not the same consequences. My only point was, you cannot assume that the same con that like a either a an elf who sins receives the same consequences as a human that sins or b that if we do not see elves experiencing the same circumstances as humans that they mu it must be like they must be in a, like even again the words unfallen as applied to elves mean something different than it does for humans in that way um yeah okay all right. Um, let's keep going. All right. I think I can do this one, and then we'll stop. Hey, we got through chapter four. We do one chapter tonight. Oh, dear. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Matt Cannon is going to be charting my progress through uh, uh, nature of Middle-earth, and it's not going to look pretty. On the other hand, the act of procreation... Being of a will and desire shared and indeed controlled by the Fea was achieved at the speed of other conscious and willful acts of delight or of making. 
It was one of the acts of chief delight, in process and in memory, in an elvish life. But its intensity alone provided, provided its importance, not its time or length. It could not have been endured for a great length of time without disastrous expense. Um, okay, first... Um, I want to pause on the word procreation here. Um, I believe that what he's talking about here, when he says the act of procreation, he means, yeah, Arthur says, I am so not going to make the obvious jokes about this. Right. Exactly. Um, he is talking about I notice that he's talking about the um, the period in an elvish life, right? Talking about it's being endured for a great length of time. He's talking about the onolume, the childbearing period, right? The act of procreation, meaning, meaning bringing forth children. Um, just wanted to make that clear that that seems to be what we're talking about here. Um, and he's characterizing that time as a whole. And this is the passage that justifies, I think, what I was saying before about applying the time flies when you're having fun principle to the whole procreational situation, to the entire pregnancy, right? Um, the begetting. So we have, and, and it includes the whole thing, right? The sex is involved here. Right. We have the uh, the 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 consummation of the marriage. Um, we have, you know, th this time of intimacy between the elf husband and wife. And that clearly is happening on a different level as well. That intimacy, that joining of them together. Right. Um, that I suspect that the kind of intimacy experienced in you know, the sexual interaction of human man and wife is only a, a very little brief picture of the kind of connection of Thea, of Thear and Roar that the elvish husbands and wives are enjoying during that period. Like it, it's, it's, um, uh, one of the acts of chief delight in process and in memory in an elvish life. That phase, the actual childbearing phase, and then the like time afterward and the, the you know, the child rearing phase as well. Um, uh, all of he's 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 including all of that stuff. Right. He's including all of that stuff together. I think when he says it was one of the acts of chief delight in process, process and in memory in an elvish life. Um, and it's really tempting just to kind of make uh, childish, dirty jokes about that sentence. But I think that um, he, he is talking about the whole thing. The act of chiefest wife, he's saying procreation, the entire process of being married, coming together, um, begetting a child, um, bringing, gestating the child, which again, remember the husband is involved, like his fea is connected with the child as well. It's not just that the mother has a more intimate connection with the child in her womb than a human mother does. The elf father does as well. 
have that same, enjoys that, I mean, based on what he says, that same kind of communion um, with the child, right? So that, that whole process is lovely, but it's so lovely that they can't do it for long. The childbearing, remember, this is all in the process of answering the question. So, if elves are immortal, they can have babies any time, right? I mean, if if they're not they're not going to like go through menopause or something, right? Like they're not going to their bodies don't give out, right? So, an elf at any time, five hundred, five thousand, fifty thousand, five hundred thousand could have babies, right? I mean, it's a question to be asked, and this is him answering it. No, no, this is why. The answer to that question is no. This is why the Onolume exists, why it's this narrow um, um, range, right? Um, because it's too good, right? It is too intensely joyful. Um, yes. And for practical purposes, Bricktails, soon the world would be stuffed to the gills with elves. Indeed, yes. Uh, if they were in a continuous state of procreation, then uh, yes, things would get um, uh, kind of tricky. Um, yes. Um, last thing to touch on is the note at the bottom. So the text ends here, about two-thirds down the page. At a later point, Tolkien wrote in pencil in the bottom margin, this will not fit the narrative in the Silmarillion. What of Maiguan? What of Maiguan? Now, I'm not sure what he's referring to when he says, what of Maiguan? I don't think it necessarily just refers to this paragraph, right? I think he's referring to the whole schema that he was just talking about. The whole um, gestation, like, gestation, if gestation is 108 years of the sun, um, there's barely time to get Maiglin born, much less raised into adulthood before the end of the siege, right? Um, exactly, Senoishi. It's the same problem Zoomfilm had. Absolutely. Um, Maiglin is, um, Maiglin is an important test case in the age of elf children because he was... The one, is this true? I think this is true. He is the one elf child. Yes, I think this is true. The one elf child who must be born during the siege, not even at the beginning of the siege of Angband. And there are dates for that. It's just a few hundred years that the siege of Angband is going on. And Maiglin can't be born until his mommy meets his daddy, right? Until Arathel is kidnapped by Eol. Um, and he has to be full-born in time to betray Gondolin, right? We don't want uh, the betrayal of Gondolin to be a juvenile science fair project uh, by, uh, uh, by uh, or I guess the result of a juvenile science fair project gone horribly awry. Um, Senalicia, not even Gogolad, not even Gogolad. Because Gilgalad, like, no harm is done to the story if Gilgalad is born earlier, right? I mean, Gilgalad could have been born in Valinor and been in his youth when he came across the Helcaraxa or something, 
Right? I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying no violence would have been done with the story because the thing about Miglin is that both the beginning of his life preconception and the end of his life are both important points within the arc of the narrative and both contained within the 400 odd years of the siege uh, of Morgoth, uh, the, of the Leaguer of Angband. Um, so that's, um, that's why I think he's saying, what of Maeglin? Like, hang on, I can't, I can't move forward like that, or I'm going to have to change a lot of things. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and yes, Brandon, you're right. Exactly. There's also that important middle point. Brandon, you're absolutely correct. It's not only that he has to be born well after the siege has begun, and he has to be full-grown by the end of the siege. Also, in the middle point, like, there's there's a checkpoint for him, too, where he has to be old enough to get the hots for Idril, right? He can't come to Gondolin when he's, like, six, the equivalent of a six-year-old child, right? He has to um, have his creepy sexual attraction to Idril, right? That's also a part of his story. So yeah, we've got to get him grown up in time. Um, and you are, um, uh, and you are absolutely right. And James, you're right. Exactly. We've got, and his mother dies, uh, you know, in, in, at, at that checkpoint as well. So we've got all the, there are all these narrative limitations on the time frame of the Maiguin story. And Sen, uh, uh, Senoitia is exactly correct. Uh, that when we were, um, the Maeglin story, the, or I should say the Arthel and Aeol story, uh, is in season five of the Silm Film Project, which we're just coming to the end of now. Um, and yeah, we were wrestling with exactly this. We were trying to figure out, like, what is the minimum age that Maeglin can be uh, when he gets to Gondolin um, in order uh, for everything to work out okay uh, with our time frame? Uh, it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, okay. All right. Um, so that opens, of course, that next big question, which is, what now does this do? Right. So, OK, so we've thought through these things in general. We've seen some of these principles in operation now. Um, how does it work? Right. How does it work? Um, what does it look like when we start to apply this to the story itself, to the Silmarillion story? Let's start at the beginning, the elf beginning. Anyway, let's go back to Quivienen and see what we need to do. And that's what's going to be occupying Tolkien in these next few chapters. So um, I look forward to talking about that next week. I will be back next week. Don't forget, Middlemoot coming up in just in three days' time. Uh, we're going to be, well, okay, three days from now it'll be over. But uh, in two and a half days' time, we will be in the midst of enjoying Middlemoot. So I hope that you can join me uh, there. Um, now for next week, uh, what did I say for last week? Did I say something crazy like chapter eight and we just got through chapter four? Kind of thinking chapter eight is safe, actually. <laughs> Let's stick with chapter eight. Let's stick with chapter eight. I, I don't think we'll get any. There's uh, no chance we're getting past chapter eight next week. So let's let's hang with that. Let's hang with that. There's plenty to do and to think through um, in um, in this um uh, in this, in these next four chapters. Um, all right. So thank you very much, everybody. Have a good night and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.